Hi, Julian. You read any good books recently? I have. I've just finished. I was going to ask you the same thing. I've just finished reading Sean Wesley's Through a Vet's Eyes. Ha, I can go one better than that. Oh, yeah? I've got Sean Wesley due to come in now. No way. Yeah, let's get him in. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Great. Hello, Sean. Hello. Where are we going to start, guys? Because I want to talk about, I want to talk about the book, but I also want to talk a little bit about Sean and his his background, his journey. Why don't we start with Dr. Sean Wensley, ex BVA president? When we when were you BVA president, Sean? How long ago? Um. BBA president from 2015 to 2016. Um, and you you did some great work as BVA president. Because you're you're not quiet and demure, are you? Um, <laughs> you, you like you like to rock the boat a little bit, I think. You think? Um I don't know, I suppose I as you know, my well, I think you probably know my primary interest is in animal welfare and animal ethics mm. so I guess that inevitably poses questions and thinking about some of those questions are more uncomfortable for some than others so yeah I don't know that I set out to rock the boat but I don't mind asking questions. I think it's asking those questions that, that, that's important isn't it because unless we ask the questions and I don't want to we're, we're getting into your your book territory I don't want to hit on that so soon but um uh, I think we, we need to ask those questions if there's any hope of getting an answer from anyone about them. But yeah. did, did you enjoy your your year as uh, as BVA president? Sorry, for, for people who um, who are just listening in from from different countries, BVA is the British Veterinary Association. So the British Veterinary Association is an instrument of uh, of, of law and change within the profession. Uh, it's a very powerful organisation association that helps to shape uh, the legalities of the veterinary world and thus the farming world and thus the pet owning world. Yeah, um, did I enjoy it? Um, I, I did. Um, it was very, it was hard work, it was demanding. Um, you have a lot of, well, A, responsibility and B, issues and areas to Think about continually um, and being the national representative body you know you're not there to play out your view and version of the world uh, you're there to very very faithfully gather and try to then reflect um, the, the views and opinions of others and I suppose I think that that journey is fascinating I mean that, that policy making journey is both fascinating and can itself be obviously hard work but to go through a process where as we just said at the start, you know, people are first of all willing to think about a question or an area that they feel the veterinary, the, the UK veterinary profession should have a, a, a view on, and then to come into the discussion once they've been uh, persuaded that that's a worthwhile discussion to have from uh, multiple angles and perspectives and backgrounds and depths of feeling from you know rank indifference. Why the hell are we thinking about this? Through to how dare we think about this through to somewhere something in, mm. in the middle um it's just a brilliant process and bba as you've probably heard from other guests is uh, just phenomenally set up to to 
to undertake that task through its committees and its volunteers and you know your, your association of vet students or the special association for them all to come together from across the world from across, uh, from across the country i should say from across different parts of the profession and to have that uh, have those discussions and eventually come up with something that we sign off in a bba council meeting and then the policy at uh, the um, the media team run with it and you know play it out to the world and as you say it can be influential um is as you can imagine really it's hard work but really really rewarding so how long have you been asking these difficult ethical questions then sean um it's funny when you put it like that because i suppose it's only in later life that you realize they are <laughs> probing ethical questions you know so you know, from being a young boy's interest with the occasional question i remember being in southport not far from where i live um and a local chip shop had a little goldfish in a bowl in the searing sunshine you know just on the on the mm -hmm. windowsill um and this kind of that's, that's no way to cook them at all is it no. they need a very very hot oh sorry sorry yeah, yeah, they'd unplug the fryer yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah so i mean you know so from back at that young age i remember being kind of a bit troubled by that and i think we um probably a bit precocious but wrote a little note to the shop and asked if they might think twice um how old were you i dread to think um probably like 12 or something like that mm -hmm. okay great great good um and then yeah i i was when i was a teenager i'd worked in a pet shop and we were selling livestock we sold rabbits and guinea pigs and cage birds and, and so on um and i was quite interested in how they were faring in their sort of little cages and what sort of life they were going on to with the people that, that bought them um so while i was at, at vet school i was able to do um a short sort of summer vacation funded projects um you've probably heard of you for this this was the zebra finches was it yeah 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 exactly um so the university's federation for animal welfare they have this um the, the great charity that fund animal welfare science including for young you know early career scientists and students um so i applied for this grant i think it was in the summer of my third year and um started to explore for the first time scientifically the, the, the first time for me the, the well-being of caged zebra finches under typical pet shop conditions as it was mm -hmm. called um and yeah that was uh, that then married the question asking with a sort of illumination of, of what animal welfare science is quite a new science but seeking to understand how different species perceive the world and what they need and want from their perspectives so you're asking the animals then well what's life like for you in this case as best we can understand it i'm, 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 I'm loving this stuff sean but you've skipped through your whole teenage years and yeah, let's, generally let's, let's considered get back to those because let's I, get I back to that you about uh, about the zebra finches again but let's yeah let's get back to to the the 12 year old sean looking through the pet shop window or working in the pet shop or working in the pet shop yeah looking out of the pet shop window thinking yeah, when right. are these going to these punters going to come and buy my zebra finches yeah so i mean that was uh so i grew up in the northwest of england uh liverpool would be my home city yeah oh. so and liverpool's on the uh sefton coast so very very large coastal dune system beautiful um pine woods 
and that's basically where I just knocked around as a. I think I think sand dunes, sand dunes, and pine pine wood systems are not generally what most people would consider when you say the word Liverpool. Well, you've got to stretch the imagination a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> but it's where the um, the Sefton coast runs from. Yeah, sort of be- basically between Southport and Liverpool. It's that whole sort of coastline. Yeah, ending yeah. in Liverpool, and we got the. Okay, so let's let's get back to you working as a teenager. So you're beginning to question the. Are you beginning to question the morals and ethics of what you're doing working in a pet shop? Is this the best for the animal? How are the animals perceiving this? Yeah, as I say, I suppose, I mean, some of the customer behaviour was interesting. Um, I would, because I was in that job with an eye on wanting to be a vet one day, like Mm. a lot of us, we sort of had that in mind from a a fairly early age. Uh, Whereas those are the other, the others I worked with weren't necessarily so yeah i mean the point being none of us had had any training you know we were we were selling live animals to people none of us had really had any training apart from a few points here and there uh, the people coming in of course didn't have to demonstrate any sort of real knowledge or awareness of what what they were taking on and right. some of them would be quite open you know you might say well well i saw two things actually that would spring to mind so one is someone that comes in for i don't know a, a bag of nuts for the the birds in the garden but they've got a small child with them and the little girl or boy sees one of the pets for sale mm. and just instantly goes you know i want one of them and the first reaction is don't be daft and then they say no no i really want one of them and start pulling at the elbow and so on and so forth and i witnessed many times you know that that absolute impulse sort of purchase and decision that uh, the, the parent would kind of just look at me and sort of through the side of them and would you, just just hypothetically if we if we did go from, you know what would we be talking is it, is it a hutch you need or like a bowl what and it, it just it was quite i was always a bit worried about yeah. that as you you know as you can imagine um and then others who came in a million miles away from the advice now given out by the pdsa your your uh, your main employers um yeah for the pet acronym but we'll, we'll get back to that yeah no absolutely um mm. And then the other one, sort of similar, it might originate through a similar journey, but you might say, uh, well, if you could, if you spend a few, you're going to get these rabbits, these guinea pigs. Um, if you spend just a few more quid, you could have maybe a larger hutch or you could get a run attached. So yeah, it did get me thinking. Uh, and as I say, I also wondered about the, to the extent I was able to, the, the quality of life of the animals that were in these little cages. They were small. They didn't really have anything to do. At one stage, we were selling chipmunks, and they were what I now know to be stereotyping, which mm. goes round and round and round and round and round the cage. You know, um, the animals would get which young children like because they, they think, "Wow, look at them! They're really active. They're great. They're running around, having great fun." Yeah, yeah. And then, mm. sort of, I think, as we know now, so understimulated and frustrated, um, and perhaps potentially scared as well. Um, yeah. And some of the indiscriminate selling, you know, you'd see some animals that had apparently formed a, a pair bond some of the birds for example um but then they are bought according to their, their plumage and how they look or or just more randomly than that and so you see two animals that are closely bonded being separated um 
it's enough just to register a thought at the time. Oh, that's a bit of a shame. Um, but later, you're able to see that that, that can be that, that's open to scientific analysis as well of the, the sure. world. Uh, I guess when when you were working there, uh, not not only were, were you young, but also the theories of animal welfare and husbandry were, were young, weren't they? In terms of companion animals, we the the yeah. world just didn't think. Look mm. at look at these sentient beings that they're yeah. uh, that they're being stressed. Uh, yeah. And I remember I, I worked briefly at a pet shop as well because I wanted to be a vet. And it was a way to to work with animals, wasn't it? So yeah. so. So going back, it was, it was then before that, clearly before that, you decided to be a vet. How, what sort of age do you think you were when you thought, I'm going to be a vet? Um, probably, it would have been primary school. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly which age, but I mean, a general sense that you wanted to work with animals. Um, interestingly, the only thing I've ever really seriously considered other than a vet was a journalist or a so I guess they had that kind of writing interest from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I wanted to work with animals, thinking about some of the options, you know, the classic kind of animal rescue center, zookeeper, biologist. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, you, you know, going back to, yeah, I thought that vet would be quite nice and you get to obviously work with animals and people and caring owners and all the rest of it. Um, and no regrets, to be honest. I'm, I'm yeah. very happy that I did study veterinary medicine. Well, I'm studied, go on, June. I was going to say you studied in, in Liverpool, I think, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the okay. hometown. Yeah. Home I'm, I'm interested by the journalism piece because reading your book, there are some beautifully written descriptions of the sand dunes that you just mentioned and the woods and the fields and the coastline around on the on the Formby coast uh, or the Sefton coastline rather and I, I'm, I'm intrigued when did you actually write those sections ah oh, that's a great question um thank yeah. you, <laughs> if, you just, if I may say so um he's had a bit of practice in asking questions over the last couple of years <laughs> um the book's been a bit of a work in progress so you know I've come back to it uh, it's been an idea for a while and I've dipped in and out. So those parts were probably written around 2010. There we go. So for, for the for the listeners there, Julian's holding up uh, Sean Wednesday's book called Through a Vet's Eyes, which is a fabulously interesting read and is summarised there by how we can choose a better life for our animals. Um, but before, we're, we're going to delve into the book in more detail there, I think, because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that you've written in that book, Sean. And I think we've got so many, so many marks in the chapters um, that we want to delve into. And Julian's already mentioned <laughs> that I, those are mine. I wrote three pages of notes. I never wrote yeah. I never write notes. <laughs> I never. But, uh, so we're, we're going to thank you for allowing us to read your book. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, want to, we want to delve into that for for, our, for you guys, our listeners, and uh, delve into that in, in quite some detail because there's some really good science in there. Um, but each of the chapters 
has got a section that I've just alluded to in that what Sean does in the book is he guides us into some of the more difficult moral and ethical questions around the way that we perceive and the way that we work with animals, whether that be through um, working with them as, as pets or working with them as, as agricultural, um, how do I describe this? What's a good word for this? Well, I'm lost for words here. Subjects. Subjects, Specific. farming, yeah. food or, production. Or, or, or not actually working with them, but just getting them off the supermarket shelf and eating yeah. them. And, and I think that's, that's to, to me, that's the most impacting part of the book, the way we, we relate to how we choose our food. Yeah. So like my question, that food is animal. My question there was relating to the fact that there's some beautifully written descriptions of the coastline around Liverpool where, where Sean grew up. Um, and that's hearing him say that he wanted to be a journalist, potentially, if he wasn't going to be a vet, uh, made me wonder when those sections were actually written. Because to me, some of them, they were written as a teenager. Yeah. Is that, is that right? That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I loved, I mean, I, I, I loved creative writing rather than journalism, should we say. So a journalist yeah, sure. probably came into my mind because I just enjoyed writing and that is a, a, a writerly way to spend time. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I, I loved creative, creative writing at, at, at school, you know, English, mm-hmm. English language story, writing, giving it homework to write stories. That was great. Um, but you're right. So there was sort of contemporaneous notes and passages from from that time. I would say because it was, you know, you can form quite powerful memories as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So whilst I do draw heavily on passages and notes that were drafted at the time, I still feel when I dis- in describing some of those things that. You know, you can walk down them in your mind. You can walk down certain paths in your mind and mm-hmm. observe and smell the same sorts of things because it was such a, a powerful time. But I think it's interesting because I've, mm. I've seen some. I mean, I think this would be classed in the literature, and I think it's mentioned on the back of the book as nature writing. And there's this genre of nature writing, isn't there? And maybe mm-hmm. a resurgence of interest in nature writing, not least because of people reconnecting with nature during lockdowns and that sort of thing. Um, but I've also seen some criticism of nature writing and then it seemed it, some people feel it almost well you could be you could be alluding to this but then thinking well maybe that's not the case as you know how, people say well how on earth do people have so much time to just drift around in nature and write about nature <laughs> that it's such a alien concept to, to most lived experience and it's true. It is true. So this picks up on that. I, I, I was able to sort of indulge in teenage memories and use it for the purpose I do in the book. But my opportunity now to get over onto Belfast Lock, which is where I live now in Northern Ireland, are, are far fewer, you know, because I've got a job and a family. Commitments. commitments. And I, lo- I still love time spent in nature, but you're right. I mean, it's... I, I, I found it incredibly... Yeah, indulgent is, is 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 a good word to use, but I, I found it grounding. I found that here was was the sense of of, of nature that that we can all relate to, even if we've not seen those full mills or those cormorants or, or that part of of North Wales. 
we can all think about nature rambles that we've been on. And it's calming and it's nostalgic and it's, it's quiet. And then suddenly, how many cattle are killed? How much blood? How many, how many chickens can't walk? And then one of your, one of your statistics um, that I found horrific. We, we all know how many, roughly how many chickens are, are, are killed and eaten each year because it's a lot because most of us eat chicken many times uh, a month. But, but actually, you know, it's, it's a billion or so chickens killed a year. Mm. And a lot of the chickens, the ones uh, bred for, 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 the, for the table, the broiler chickens, are bred to grow incredibly quickly. So I think it's about three months, isn't it, the, the, the bred to, to reach full size. Three months, there's no age at all. Uh, and of course, they have bone problems as a result of that. They're, they, they're grown to, to be on the capacity for their skeleton to, to keep up. Uh, but you do say that that's improving. So the lameness in, in broiler chickens has been reduced to just 1% from about 2% a few years back, which is fantastic. But it's still, I've got the figure here, it's still 660 million birds a year in too much pain to even stand. And that's, that's the global figure, isn't it? That's the global figure. Oh my goodness me, that, that is absolutely appalling. But, and, and, and it's the contradistinction between you looking for those bee orchids mm. and finding them and, and the, the, the intricate beauty of the bee orchids and then slam dunk, bam, look at these chickens that can't even walk. And so I think you've done a very clever thing there of, of, mm. of lulling us into a false sense of security and whacking us against the head with, uh, with a dead chicken, as it were. Uh, and, I, and I love it because I think it is, that's what we need is a wake-up call, this book. And it should be taken, I think, as a wake-up call. What gave you the inspiration for the book, Sean? Why suddenly have you produced this book? Um, well, as I say, it's been uh, a good while in its gestation, so it wasn't uh, a lockdown project or anything like that. Right. Um, to be honest, when I'd... Going back to the, the story of the zebra finches and that, yeah. that beautiful project when I was a student, as I say, it opened my eyes to the field of animal welfare science, this science of assessing, as I say, assessing how animals perceive the world and what they need and want from their perspectives. How are they faring under human stewardship? That's now open to scientific inquiry. And I thoroughly enjoyed my project, my zebra finches, but even better was when the... Um, grant recipients came together for a, a day and we all had to do a little you know student presentation um and actually sitting there listening to the other students projects and what they found just blew me away really and you know it was one of those uh, when i was at liverpool they'd recently uh, introduced a, a an intercalated bsc in conservation medicine and so because of my interest in wildlife biodiversity i'd always thought i'd love to maybe intercalate and do this new bsc and then sitting at that UFO meeting and hearing about the, the animal welfare science, I asked some of the academic researchers that were there and the supervisors, you know, if, if I was to make some sort of career out of this or explore this journey, this direction, what, what might that look like? And they told me about uh, a master's that was available at Edinburgh University in applied animal behavior and animal welfare. 
and that like the bsc would have been a one-year course but tagged on to the end rather than in the middle and you know it was one of those times in my life when you're sort of making career decisions a really mm. mold because i'd had my heart set on applying for this conservation medicine bsc yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was just sort of sent from the hand of the gods you know um but i was really mm, I paused so on balance i decided to apply for the msc instead um and that's when i started getting sort of interested so to answer your question <laughs> the, re the reason for that ramble is once <laughs> i had um studied it you sort of learned all the science of the pain caused by castrating lambs or, or whatever but equally i had the experience of having been on the farm as a placement and, and done that sort of work and i just felt there was a story to be told of trying to fundamentally wanting to relate on the science because they're so interesting so important how do i it was a science communication motivation mm -hmm. could you bring it to life rather than just sort of telling people about science could you tell it through the well through the eyes of a of someone that's mm -hmm sort of clumsily held said lamb and and done that thing at quite high pace really through necessity and similarly with piglets and then mm. just had half a glance as you were ushered in to do something else at them tottering around and just having half a thought well that surely can't be pleasant but i don't have time to think about it right now mm -hmm. but yeah it was a science communication motivation really yeah and, and you mentioned um I, i'd said earlier I'll get back to those zebra finches later, and this is that later, because you you said uh, I think in in chapter one beneath the the skin when you're looking at comparative anatomy and physiology and using that as a, as the mm -hmm. stepping stone, basically you know under the skin, well you know, we're all pretty much the same. Uh, yeah, there are a few differences, but you know birds and, and beasts we're, we're pretty much the same. We have the same biology, so why not the same mentation to some extent? Uh, and how do you go about proving that? Because you can't run the risk from a public perception point of view of anthropomorphizing, can you? You can't, you can't try and change farmers' mentalities, and you can't try and change the government's uh, codes of, of, of ethics and, and, uh, and legalities based on I think there's pretty little pigs thinking this. We can't say he's looking, he's looking sad, he's looking dull. So you have to do scientific experiments, scientific studies to try and prove that there is some suffering involved in the way that zebra finches are kept, in the way that pigs' tails are adopt and their teeth are cut. Because also we're aware that we, we must preserve farming as a way of life i think we must preserve farming as a way of life because do we preserve it or do we conserve it <laughs> well we need to change it but but ultimately oh. i think we, we need to make sure that the, the, the farmers can make a living mm -hmm. we want to we don't want to alienate them we want to get them to think uh, of our point of, uh, of view if it's the right point of view so the first question is do you have the right point of view? And I think the study you did on the zebra finches shows that in that case, yes, you did. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. I think that's what Michael and I being very careful about. We don't give any spoilers to the book. But you you do show that um, that zebra finches are, I think it's fair to say, less happy in captivity than not in captivity. 
by the fact that it stifles their normal behaviour. And you show that with a few other species as well, that actually caged species, even those that, that are born in cages and bred over several generations in cages or, or captivity of some sort, will, when they get the chance, exhibit the behaviour that the wild form exhibited, which must mean that that caged or captive behaviour is inhibitory. And you, you give uh, a lot of um, mention then to, to the five needs, which uh, obviously at vet school we, we were taught of as the, as the five freedoms. So do, do, do you want to just mention those, those five needs for that context? Yeah, and if I could just go back a second, I mean, just to what you're saying there. So <clears throat> this, again, you can, you can kind of start that set of thought processes back in the pet shop. So if we care for a society that wants to care for animals, so let's accept even, we can't take that for granted. So we've got societies that haven't even thought about it and, and mm-hmm. um, provide a, a very basic level of care. Um, but we have got a solid foundation of wanting to care for animals. But in that pet shop world and, and in many other places, we, view, we can view it in quite sort of physical way. Are they well fed? Are they clean? Are they given a walk once a day. I mean, that's obviously has a mental component to it. Um, but as I described, the, the, the zebra finch cage is a sort of tick box world. And, and a lot of, I mean, I think probably when I was a little lad, again, keeping certain pets, you'd be thinking about all those things. I've got to clean them out. I've got to make sure they've got the, the right mm. food at the right time. It, and what I think has evolved is that it, it's fundamentally um, thinking about their mental health, their mental well-being, and how behavior is a window on that. And what's most important, as you just mentioned, is thinking about evolutionary legacy. So all of these captive animals, even when they're domesticated over many generations, that span of domestication is just a a mere blink of the evolutionary eye. Um, They've been around as a species for eons longer than than we have, Mm. and certainly than we have had a chance to modify their appearance and or behavior through domestication. So they bring that with them and they, in the vast majority of cases, and I give several examples, would prefer to be able to express the most highly motivated parts of that behavioral repertoire in captivity. So it's not an argument to say that they need to be able to do everything that they would do in the wild. And people say, well, you know, does that mean they have to be chased by a cheater and all this sort of thing yeah, absolutely it's, it's not everything bad as well as everything good is it but <laughs> no but, but, think, but when some behavior is externally motivated like fleeing in the face of a predator other things we know are internally motivated and it's those highly internally motivated behaviors that have evolved and not dissipated uh, or at least disbanded completely through domestication it's when they can't be expressed potentially suffering can result so it's that evolutionary legacy and and equally in a more positive framing when you do allow them to be expressed it also helps us realize the ambition of giving animals a good life so that in the conditions of human stewardship um they not only sort of tolerate being kept and used for our benefit but actually we could aspire to them enjoying it and uh, you know, we're, we're truly being a symbiotic relation, and probably mm. one of the main ways that we don't achieve that at the moment is allowing them to express some of their highly motivated normal behaviours. Interesting. Yeah. Descartes has got a lot to answer for, hasn't he? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had some pretty challenging times on this front. Um, but I mentioned, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about that history as well. I mentioned Pythagoras, you know, going way back. Yes. He um, would dwell on the, the, the right the right way to treat human animals. Um, but it's waxed, that sort of concern has waxed and waned over history. And hopefully now that we do have this, this scientific backing, perhaps it'll be anchored as a concern for a bit longer than it has been previously and, and less vulnerable to waning again. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I think it would be so much of a mistake to to go back uh, in, in in many ways, and I, I guess um, you know what, what what does going back mean? Because again, you give a lot of examples of times and, and, and situations we've perhaps got things wrong. We've caused animal suffering because we've wanted to prevent animal suffering. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, the best example, I think, is, is the farrowing crates for pigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, um, and when I was at vet school, we were told, you know, sow crates were a thing of the past. We'd never see them again. Uh, oh, oh, except, you know, around the time that they're farrowing. Well, hang on. That's, that's surely the existence. Uh, anyway, um, the, so farrowing crates, for people who haven't read uh, Sean's book yet, are um, uh, just just what they sound like. They are crates uh, that stop uh, sows from moving around once they've had their piglets. They are kept rigidly, pretty much. They can't turn, they can feed, they can lie to some extent, but they're not allowed to, to move enough to fall over and lie on the piglets because about 10% of piglets, it's reckoned, may be killed by the sows lying on them. So great welfare issue there, solved. We stop the pigs from lying down, they can't fall on the on the piglets. So we've helped them. But actually the, the intense suffering of not being able to turn around and, and look at your piglets and smell them and, 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 and nuzzle them, gosh, that must be mentally buggering, mustn't it? <laughs> I've run out of... of, of eloquence there it must be the worst thing in the world for these pigs but but it was done initially to to help those poor little where it wasn't was it it was done to improve piglet production by 10 percent because 10 percent of them being killed but there was a good end point in 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 theory yeah so yeah exactly so kind of recognition of one harm and causing another harm to prevent it Um, And I think, you know, that could, if you step back to a time where physical health and the physical needs is all that matters, well, as we say in the book, you know, the the warmth or the temperature and climatic environment is absolutely spot on for them, optimal. Um, They have the right food and the right quantities, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing, then their physical health is give or take wanting for, for nothing. But if we accept and start recognizing that they have this evolutionary legacy and they're similar to their wild ancestors, um, we know that domesticated sows have only ever experienced indoor conditions from birth when released into naturalistic enclosures and monitored and studied, will very, very quickly revert to wild type behavior. You know, it's all up there. And mm. part of that for a, a sow 
is wanting to detach from the rest of the group and build a nest mm-hmm. um, shortly before she farrows. And of course, in the outdoor systems, they're, they're able to do that. And you can see videos on online mm. if you're not on a farm of them diligently going across and taking mouthfuls of straw and building that nest um, as they would. So yeah, that 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 is frustrated in a crate, um, as is the rest of you know all of the other sort of implications that you described. So then. Once we know that and we start thinking about it in those terms, it's different because now we can accept there is a problem for the South. So absolutely it was sort of originated in good faith, but it is mm-hmm. definitely creating a welfare problem for the South. And then you've got, you think, well, okay, what can we do about it? Well, one of the common blockers is to say not a lot because if we do it, nobody else will and we'll just export the problem, we'll import the cheap meat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it just isn't feasible, and so on and so forth. And that's been again, it's sort of an argument that comes from a place that I understand. But as momentum builds in society for some for increasing displeasure and discomfort at seeing a sow have to go through that, then the context shifts, the market shifts, and there's yeah. this concept of. ethical sustainability when we talk about sustainable production Mm -hmm. uh, an increasing Mm -hmm. likelihood that that from a negative framing consumers will reject a product that's come from those systems or more positive framing they will maybe elect to take your product when you you don't do that and that doesn't mean that it all has to be i suppose importantly it doesn't have to all then be outdoor production is this again research commercially uh, researching commercial settings to look at indoor free farrowing systems which have designed pens that use rails and barriers that allow the piglets to get away from the from the sow um and she of course has a a bit more freedom than she would so it it doesn't mean that we have to go from one extreme to the other um but that that's gaining traction and as you've seen there there are various supermarkets and brands and others that are making sure they choose uh, sows that have come from those systems you steer a very fine line in the book between a high welfare standards for animals, but not saying thou shalt not, because at the end of the day, that is food production, and that's what we require as, as humans is, is food. I've got two questions for you. One is, have you, do you as a person take that beyond? Do you still, do you still eat meat? I do, yeah. So the book... Okay. For, the, for people that eat meat, you know, the, the book promotes a less and better approach, um, and that's something that I strive to stick to myself. Yeah, it, I it, have it, to say, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt you for a moment, Mike, because I, I know you've got some interesting things to ask. But at the end of uh, of Sean's book, uh, there's the BVA hashtag Choose Assured, uh, and it gives you yeah. a very good uh, way of, of of selecting better uh, better well fed meat if i can call it that absolutely and and i think it's it's important to to say that it's a very balanced it's a very balanced book sean doesn't preach to to his audience he just goes this is what's happening this is how we do it and this we might want to be aware of xyz again without taking all of the thing from there but how does a mum of three afford it 
Yeah, and I mean, the timing of publication is tricky, isn't it, on that question, and the cost of living crisis. Mm. Um, I do talk about um, potential government support. So we're seeing government support now in a way that we haven't previously for farm animal welfare standards. Mm-hmm. So when during my time at BVA, just on the, the officer team and on council, um, some of the work that we did that was then linked to that Choose a Short infographic was in the uh, post-Brexit agricultural landscape and evolving policy. We were arguing with others, BVA were, that um, there should be public money for public goods as part of the new policy and that public goods should include animal welfare. So you may remember there's a bit of a drive to sort of say, right, we've got this golden opportunity to redesign our uh, our agricultural policy and we want to see more stewardship of the land. So that was really, they were thinking about it in terms of the environment and biodiversity and, you know, creating incentives to more hedgerows and ponds and, and that sort of thing, which no surprise from the way I've written that it, it all resonates very, very strongly with me. But equally, we didn't want animal welfare as a as a social concern and an important social issue to slip through the gaps. Maybe it, if the argument could be made persuasively, should also be um, eligible for some of this money from the public purse. And we we won that argument. So, you know, there, there was lobbying and meetings and all the things that BVA does brilliantly and the government accepted um, that, that that should be part of it. So we now have this uh, developing it's called the Animal Health and Welfare Pathway in England, uh, which BBA and others are, are now feeding into. But they're looking for, for, for the first time, for the first time, it, um, there is public money being allocated to the problem of how can we help farmers move away from firing crates? I mean, that's, yeah. that's in scope. Um, some, of these, some of the problems that I talk about are, are in scope for this funding. So previously, we'd had to if you're going to increase your cost of production through tackling some of these problems previously we had pretty much solely appealed to the marketplace you know so mm-hmm. to yeah, if, if you if you want to get friendly meat then you pay more for it that's what it yeah it's yeah, yeah. down to in the past isn't it mm-hmm. yeah if you, if you, want, to, if you want to get uh, chickens that, that have had a wonderful or a better life, I don't think any chicken has a wonderful life, but a better life, then you pay two or three times as much per chicken. Yeah, um, although, well, yes, although I do try and also make the point that it's not, now this doesn't at all detract from what we said about the cost of living crisis, but it's not always as much more expensive as some hmm. people think. Um, yeah. I use the example of one of our leading budget, one of our budget supermarkets in the UK is, a, uh, I think, the second leading stockist of RSPCA assured meat, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but that notwithstanding, yeah. So we'd always been appealing to the informed, concerned citizen, as you say, to pay, pay a, a little bit more, mm-hmm. maybe eat a little bit less so that that kind of balances out, mm-hmm. uh, or less meat and dairy, so you pay, um, eat a bit less, pay a bit more, um, and you were but nevertheless appealing to the marketplace. Um, but now for the first time, some government funding coming along as well um so so that will help you know you can still be because i think it's a mistake to assume that people who can't afford to fund certain standards themselves don't care in fact they might they may feel it has been suggested they may feel even worse you know that they're as caring as everybody else yeah and they can't afford it 
So yes. if if the book not only sort of says, well, if you're able to, then you might like to, i.e. Mm-hmm. eat a bit less, mm-hmm. less meat and dairy and pay a bit more for it. But also, it, you don't have, it can also be part of just a general societal movement and momentum. I, I will caveat that, that also, if you're yeah. struggling in life, you don't have the time and energy to campaign as well. So I, I totally accept that. But mm-hmm. not everything that's being suggested costs money, I suppose, is, uh, and there are vast swathes of society that, that care maybe just in ways that they can't easily yeah. explore. I think you're right. I think it is a societal change. It's, it's yeah. got to be a move away from the meat and two veg every night. I, I was, my mind is buzzing, Sean, because there, there are so many different ways we can go. We, we, we ramble, uh, as, uh, as the name suggests, but you're clearly very good at, um, at teaching people these, these things. You, you've, uh, uh, your, your book shows a very good uh, non-didactic teaching style. Um, I don't know whether you've, you've come across any parts of, of the Beckman Rambling show where there is some direct didactic teaching over the course of a minute. Have you, uh, yes, I have. Have you heard of the 60 I've got the clock ready. I'm aware of it, yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything that you might want to tell us in 60 seconds? Yeah, I'm, I, I will caveat that I haven't rehearsed the 60 seconds part, but I know you'll cut me off. That's, so. that's fine. That's, fine. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Okay, so absolutely thrilled, Sean, that you're up for the 60-second CPD challenge. So Sean Wensley on pre-purchase, um, pre-purchase um, considerations. Yeah, how to structure a pre-purchase consultation. How to structure a pre-purchase consultation for somebody who's asking about pet advice, starting now. Okay, I, I would, well, I'd say this consultation could be a game of two halves. It's a, a golden opportunity to speak to people and help them um, make the right choice of pets and then how to look after the pet. So they're thinking about which pet to get. The first part is to think about their lifestyle and circumstances. We structure that around the acronym PETS, P-E-T-S. Is your place suitable for the type of pet that you're thinking about? Would you be able to exercise the uh, provide exercise opportunities for the animal that they would need? Would you have the time to commit to their, their care? And do you have S for spend? Do you have a realistic understanding of what their likely monthly and lifetime costs are going to be? And that will create a short list. The answers to those questions will create a short list of species and breeds. And then for the chosen breed or species, you would counsel them through the five welfare needs for that pet. Place, exercise, um, environment, diet, behaviour, companionship and health. If you know what all of those are for each pet, you're going to make a good choice. Wow. They're fabulous. That's absolutely fantastic. I was deliberate use exactly. for a second. I noticed that. It was good. <laughs> well, well, reco- well recovered there, there, right? <laughs> with, the, with the clock ticking down, nice, nice recovery there. I think it's, it's interesting. I read something uh, earlier on today which was talking um about turning somebody turning an argument and if you've got the opportunity for a a pre-purchase consultation that person obviously cares and they've got the interest and they have the the care and even if it comes down to initially being a, a slightly conflict conflict situation 
if you keep in the back of your mind that that person, in order to get into that discussion in the first place, from whatever standpoint they're coming from, they actually care. Yeah. And so you can help them very constructively work through things that they may have considered and dismissed or may not even have considered um, to the benefit, of course, of the family and the keeper and the pet that's uh, it's concerned. Yeah. And as ever, it's trying to sort of keep away from you know, finger wagging and wanting to just tell them everything to put them off a million and one pets. It's more we want you to have this amazing family mem- new family member as much as you do, but if we can just help you see how that breed or that species might be more likely to become such a a rewarding member of your family for many years to come, then we're happy to give the advice. And I know there are barriers. People think that we, people think we're too busy. People think Mm -hmm. we would charge a lot of money for it. Mm -hmm. I think they're the two main ones, or they just just don't even think it comes back. And people think we're biased against certain species yeah. and breeds, which which we are, I guess, but through scientific reasoning. Um, and and through imagining, I, I give I give a couple of examples here. Um, I've been particularly bad over the last couple of years at, at advising friends, relations on getting pets, uh, and. The two occasions I can think of, uh, one with a friend who lives in a flat, he said he wants to get a border collie, and you know, Miles was no, 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 worst breed to get in a flat, really. So, anyway, he's happy now with his border collie, and he takes it out five times a day. And to be honest, it's got him out of the flat, that's worked, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you were right about the tiger, that guy should not have been keeping a tiger, he shouldn't have been kept. Well, no. the tiger's okay now, he's gone. Well, yeah, uh, but, but the other one was, was uh, someone who, who said, look, I want to get a French bulldog. What, what can you advise? And I said, well, I can advise to try and live your life for a week. Just using a snorkel to breathe, but mm-hmm. covering up most of the end of the snorkel with a bit of sellotape first. And then see whether you want to get a clothes bag over your nose, snorkel, cover up the snorkel with, uh, with sellotape, and then see after a week whether you want to get a, a bulldog. Uh, and they've got a bulldog, and um, I've I've uh, operated, and now it can breathe a little bit better. Um, but Boas, um, that's a whole new topic for us. And I think that's a whole we're show. Out of, we're out of that time tonight. But but briefly, your advice on Boas surgery and dogs. And- well, I just say as well. I mean, I think you make a really good point because um, um, again, people are going to. We shouldn't beat ourselves up about our realistic prospects of making sure everyone gets the ideal pet so they get they are going to they're not walking into that consultation in most cases as a just a blank slate waiting to <laughs> soak up every piece of advice forgive them um so but if they come in hell-bent on getting a brachycephalic dog then i've heard anecdotes of people then taking on pet insurance or pet insurance to a certain level that they hadn't thought to previously so that you know and then they've been able to i mean so it's, it really is it's mm. a it's really not the outcome we were after clearly but it's something and you've maybe then been able to talk about keeping the the, the real importance the uh, mm. or the particular the special importance of keeping them at a healthy weight um not exposing to the risks of heat stroke um and as you say recognizing that some of the 
what you think are endearing, quirky, funny noises, characterful noises are, are, are really indicative of a, a serious welfare problem. And that in some cases, surgery will be in an animal's best interests to make them happy. So yeah, I guess mm -hmm. we can be sort of relaxed about, we shouldn't, as we shouldn't beat ourselves up if our pre-purchase consultations don't always lead to perfect outcomes, but we can probably generate welfare gains rather than not. And we, as, as vets, can let people know that actually we, we care and yeah. we want, as you say, we want them to have the best experience and their pet to have the best experience. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's brilliant. Okay, well, you've, you've given us at least 60 seconds worth of CPD, Sean. Probably, <laughs> more, probably, much more. Probably more than an hour, actually. Now, I was, I was chatting to some members of the RCVS Council last week, which Julian doesn't <laughs> know about. I don't know about that. You didn't know about that. Now, we have proudly said and provided all of our listeners with CPD certificates. And I think you've got a CPD certificate for Sean? I've got one. Okay, hang on a second. The only thing that we haven't done is we haven't asked a reflection question. So in order to make veterinary ramblings fully CPD compliant with the RCVS, which means that any of our veterinary listeners can claim for listening to an hour or an hour and a half of CPD, we need a reflection question. So, Sean, can I ask you, can you give us a reflection question on what we've talked about this evening, please? Well, I guess it goes, maybe I'm thinking about it again in terms of the professional and the personal. So on a professional note, mm -hmm. I might humbly suggest we could reflect on our dual professional responsibility that we've mentioned. So one is the responsibility to the animals under our care that come in day in, day out, and we all work our socks off to help and help their, their owners and mm -hmm. those around them. But the broader responsibility is to think about animal use more generally and how we as vets can, and, and vet nurses and veterinary professions can kind of change the status quo of animal use and maybe have fewer brachycephalic dogs coming in the practice in the first place as a result mm. of it mm. and there are different ways of discharging that broader responsibility it might be that you join your local veterinary association and start having some, some of these conversations maybe you get involved with the local uh, young vet network you know and, and it's about sort of conversations and activities beyond the practice very acutely aware that very many people are stressed and tired and in a very difficult place so i don't i'm not at all naive that it's easy to do some of that broader activity but when we can just to reflect on how we can and if we are mm -hmm. and then back on the personal side similarly just to reflect on what i've used in the book the term an animal welfare footprint so the mm. The, the yeah, I thought it was a very clever point, actually, yeah, our, likening our, that to a carbon footprint. Maybe just reflect on our choices and how we might be able to, for example, eat less and better meat and dairy, which isn't at all an anti-agriculture message. It's a pro-animal welfare message, and it's hopefully helping value food and value farmers in a way that I think they'd all like to see. You, you do say uh, you're not anti-agriculture, and, and you, you absolutely are not. No, you're not. We're not. We, I've got many, many friends who are farmers. Um, and in fact, I get most of my meat 
from them. And they're, they're farmers who have gone down the, the organic or the free range or the extensive route. Um, and I would encourage farmers where possible to do that, to, to get the best welfare and, and the best price for something that they put a lot of care and attention and love into. Mm. Um, but, but here we go. So you you mentioned, you don't mention, you, you title your book, From a Vet's Eyes, How We Can All Choose a Better Life for Animals. And so the certificate is Certificate of a Better Life. And this okay. certifies that you can help to improve the lives of animals. So, so bloody do it. Uh, and there's a, there's a picture there of a, of a, a colobus monkey suckling her, her young. And so that's the, the best way, I think, of, of anthropomorphizing and of getting the feel, wrongly or rightly, for uh, animals not only having sentience but having feelings and love. There's some, there's some fish. We didn't touch on farmed fish. I thought there's something for another day. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the cruelty, the fairness or whatever of, of, uh, of farming fish or even fishing. There's a, a wonderful, I'm going to bring this up to the, the screen a bit more, there's a beautiful uh, Gloucester Old Spot pig there at a, at a friend's farm making a nest. And you mentioned uh, farrowing sows. She's making a nest for her piglets and having a great time. Just below that, there's a, now I believe this is a Sudanese ram. Um, not not what I've seen before. This was in this country. This was uh, at, a, at a zoo. And it was really just to illustrate that over the, uh, the, 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 the hundreds and thousands of years we've been keeping sheep, we've kept them for various traits. And you mentioned that in your book, I think more in regard to cattle than to sheep. But the fact that we've gone down very strict breeding regimes to produce types of, of animals to produce milk to produce meat to produce wool to produce whatever uh, and now perhaps we should rethink that and go in for something that's going to produce an all-rounder with less waste because we don't want to have dairy cattle produced where we have to just kill the male calves because that's cruel and a waste and to end on a happy note there's a, a picture of a cormorant and you mentioned the shimmering colour of the feathers of the cormorant and this was one that I photographed actually I think uh, at Anglesey and um, and the, the picture doesn't show it justice so it really it looks to me it looks like a, a the, the, the TVR Tasmin uh, reflective paint they are you know, <laughs> to, use, to use a mechanical uh, simile there Beautiful colouring on a on a cormorant that you might just look at first and think that's oh, black. They're, yeah. they're shimmering, they're golden, they're purple, they're blue, they're green, they're all colours. But overall, uh, the certificate, I think, hopefully, will do justice to to the variety of information and joy I got from reading Sean's wonderful book through a vet's eyes. Well, it's very very kind. Thank you, Julian. Are they all your photos? They're all my photos, yes. I, I don't want anyone to accuse me of, uh, <laughs> of plagiarism. Breaking copyrights, they're all mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, fabulous. They look really great. Yeah. So, no, that's, that's, that's brilliant. So, um, don't forget, you've got your reflection. You've got a reflection question. 
You can download the certificate off uh, off our website, veterinaryramblings.com, and uh, present that to the RCVS as your uh, as your one hour's worth of uh, CPD. Yep. That's a- absolutely brilliant. Can you hold the, hold the book up for me again, please, Julian? Yeah. yeah. So this is the book, Through a Vet's Eyes. We've covered a lot of the stuff in here, but we have avoided spoiler alerts. So... Get yourself down. It's it's available on Amazon, I think, isn't it? From Octopus Books. It is, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. most online retailers, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's out now, available from most online retailers. It's a really good read. And, well, and at bookshops, you can actually walk into a shop and yes. buy the book. And yeah. please do that because you might see all sorts of other books there and and chat to the people behind the counter and ask them if they read it and talk to them about what meat they like to eat and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And even actually, uh, you may know online, there's one of the online retailers is bookshop.org and they support. Oh, yes. We use book. that. We use that. My my daughter's got a we, we, our Christmas present for them this year was a, a book a month. From bookshop.org. What are, the, what are they doing, Sean? They, they support independents. So if you if your preference is to support the independent booksellers, which is great, then uh, bookshop.org will enable you to do that online. That'd be fantastic. That's lovely. Fabulous. And don't forget to subscribe because it actually helps. It really does help. Helps us and it helps uh, spread the word and helps us guess other exciting guests just like Sean on to to discuss and just ramble. Before we stop rambling, can I say a massive thanks, A, for having me on and B, for reading it. The thought of people reading this piece of work that you pile so much time and effort into is sort of terrifying so when you say some nice things it's really really appreciated thank you it, you're, you're it's, very worth, it's worth reading it's worth it's reading worth and, uh, whether you i i fully agree with with all of sean's comments uh whether you agree or not it's a beautifully written book and so i'd encourage people to read it sean you've you've enriched our lives in much the same way as you would uh have us enriching the lives of all the farm animals and pets and so what i can say is thank you so much May your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And cut. <laughs> How was it? That was splendid for me. Thank you very much. Yeah, Have you enjoyed great. yourself? Sorry? Have you enjoyed yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to, in all honesty, um, you know, that's the... the, the I've, that's the first time I've talked in length about it. I, I mean, I'm not joking to, to work on something for such a long time with stops and starts and it being such a private experience. Mm-hmm. I know at the moment, because it only got released on Thursday, that people are feeding mm. it, and that, which is just, you know, bizarre and terrifying in equal measures. Yep. And now to talk about it, it's a, a, absolutely, I love it. I'm glad you've enjoyed yourself, because we have as well, Sean. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks for your